As I mentioned a while ago, uh, this past um, a little over a week, um, Audrey and I, as well as Alan and Deborah Taylor, um, uh, were in New Orleans for uh, the Southern Baptist Convention meeting. It was overall a great meeting. We will have um, an update at some point in the next week or so, um, let you know um, some of the things that happened and some of the things that went on. I know there were certain things that happened that made the national news, um, but there were a lot of things that happened that didn't make the national news. And some of those things are the things that are the best things of what we did. Like I said, we commissioned 79 missionaries, many, many of whom were commissioned behind a screen as they told their story because they're headed into closed countries. Countries where if their identity was known as a missionary, they would potentially be in trouble. Um, perhaps even their own lives or the lives of the nationals that they work with. We, uh, we did a lot of good things at this convention, and I, I look forward to telling you about them. Um, one of the things that we did at this convention was there is always a convention sermon. Uh, this year, the convention sermon was brought by North Carolina's own Todd Unzinker. Todd is our state convention executive director treasurer. Um, I have gotten uh, the extreme privilege over the last couple of years to kind of, sort of, get to know Todd. Um, at least when I text him, he knows who I am. Um, so I'm counting that as a win. Um, and, uh, um, but Todd brought the convention message, and, and one of the, the central elements of that message was this, that oftentimes prayer is not the first thing that we do, but rather it is our last resort. That oftentimes, instead of turning to God first, we try and do things under our own power, and then we turn to God. Todd's exhortation to us at the convention was, let us not do that in the work of the convention, in the work of our churches. I would also tell you, let's not do it in the work of our own lives. This is central to the story that we're going to be in today. We're in 1 Samuel chapter 4. We continue our study of 1 and 2 Samuel. I'll remind you where we have been. We have, we have learned about the crisis in the land and the crisis in a family. We have seen how the miraculous conception and birth of a little boy named Samuel is part of God's plan to solve both of these crises. And the last time that we were together in Samuel, we saw God's call of Samuel. We saw God call to uh, this still small boy as he worked in the tabernacle with Eli. We also have learned about Eli's two sons. We've learned about Hophni and Phinehas. And we have learned that they are part of the crisis in the land, that these are men who are not servants of God, even as they tend to God's work in the tabernacle. So as we turn to 1 Samuel 4, that is the background. Will you stand with me as we read God's Word together? 1 Samuel chapter 4, beginning with the second part of verse 1. 
Israel went out to meet the Philistines in battle and camped at Ebenezer, while the Philistines camped at Aphek. The Philistines lined up in battle formation against Israel, and as the battle intensified, Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who struck down about 4,000 men on the battlefield. When the troops returned to camp, the elders of Israel asked, Why did the Lord defeat us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the ark of the Lord's covenant from Shiloh. Then it will go with us and save us from our enemies. So the people sent men to Shiloh to bring back the ark of the covenant of the Lord of armies, who was enthroned between the cherubim. Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the ark of the covenant of God. When the ark of the covenant of the Lord entered the camp, all the Israelites raised such a great shout that the ground shook. The Philistines heard the sound of the war cry and asked, What's this loud shout in the Hebrews' camp? When the Philistines discovered that the ark of the Lord had entered the camp, they panicked. A god has entered their camp, they uh, they said. Woe to us! Nothing like this has ever happened before. Woe to us! Who will rescue us from these magnificent gods? These are the gods that slaughtered the Egyptians with all kinds of plagues in the wilderness. Sow some courage and be men, Philistines. Otherwise, you'll serve the Hebrews just as they served you. Now be men and fight. So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated. And each man fled to his tent. The slaughter was severe. 30,000 of the Israelite foot soldiers fell. The ark of God was captured, and Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, died. This is the word of God. Read it, believe it, and live it. Let's pray. Dear God, as we turn to your word this morning, as we turn to study it, my prayer is is that we would always turn to you first. That you would always be our first option and not our last resort. God, as we study your word this morning, show to us, illumine us, help us to understand the need to place you and call on you first in all things in our lives. God, as we study your word, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable and pleasing to you, our God and our King. Amen. You may be seated. You know, I, I'm not a, a big fan of the phrase well, I'm spiritual, but not religious. You ever heard this phrase before? Um, my joking response to that is often, well, that's lovely because I'm religious, but not spiritual. Which, of course, is, is also in and of itself nonsense, but I have to say it sometimes because that phrase, spiritual but not religious, just grates on me so much. There's another cliche. This is a cliche that we often have used in the church that also grates on me. And this cliche is, it's not a religion, it's a relationship. You've probably heard that before. You may even be, quote, guilty of having said something like that before. I know that I am. But it also gets to a point where it's a bit of a cliche. We've said it so much that it's almost lost its meaning. One of my frustrations with both of these expressions, even though in some ways they express, as many cliches do, a kind of truth, 
or an aspect of the truth, they also have sort of become an excuse for really meaning, I want all of the benefits of God without any of God's demands on me. Because oftentimes when people say they're religious, or they're spiritual but not religious, what they mean is, I want to worship God on the golf course on Sunday morning or at the fishing hole on Sunday afternoon. When they say, it's, it's, well, it's relationship and not religion, what they really mean is, I want to be able to do what I want and still be in relationship with God. Now, I want to be clear, not every person who has ever said these things mean this, but as you go out and as you engage the culture and as you listen to people, as I've listened to people, primarily people my age, you know, in their um, mid-30s through mid-40s, this is what they mean when they say these things. One of the reasons that I turn around and say I'm, I'm religious but not spiritual because, because the, the stuff that we do, being in worship on Sunday morning, studying God's Word regularly, being in prayer with Him, all of these things that, that, that we feel has become trappings of religion are, in fact, important. But see, here's the thing. I, I can get frustrated with those cliches. But the opposite is also true. Just as you really can't have relationship with God without doing the things that he's asked you to do, similarly, it's almost impossible to have true faith, true religion, without relationship with him. That's, a, that's the other danger that we have, right? We've all known probably people in our lives who were extreme legalists about things. I don't know about you, but I know when I grew up, where I grew up, there were, there were churches that had very strong opinions about the length of the hymns of ladies' skirts. There was a church split in my hometown over an inch. You think I'm joking? We've all known people like that too, right? And there's no relationship there. They're really good at following the jots and the tittles, but there's no, there's no relationship. These two extremes, actually we can see in the story of the prodigal sons. Well, on Wednesday nights, we've just, we've just taken, we've just wrapped up sort of looking at the story of the prodigal sons, right? And you have the, you have the younger son who sort of exemplifies the... the the spiritual but not religious. He, he runs off. He takes the good things from the father and runs off, breaks relationship, right? Doesn't want to follow any of the rules. Doesn't want to follow any of the norms. And in doing so, rebels against the father. But you've also got the elder son who rebels against the father too, right? He just rebels against the father by following all of the rules. He has no relationship and no love, no glory for his father. He's just following all the rules so he can get what he wants. In the end, the younger son and the elder son, they're the same. They just want what the father can give them. And so both of these extremes are an issue. What we see today is that second extreme. What we see is religion without relationship 
and how it fails the people. So we've talked about that there's a crisis in Israel. Right? There's, there's a lack of leadership in Israel. There's a lack of, of military leadership. There's a lack of political leadership. There's a lack of spiritual leadership. The last category being the most significant and important. But just because there's a crisis in Israel doesn't mean the people around Israel are going to leave them alone while they work out the crisis. In fact, quite the opposite, right? In the course of human history, when, when a nation state is weak, what happens? The people around them take advantage of it, try and get a little bit of extra land for their people. And that's what's happened. The Philistines have, have come up against Israel. And so they meet them in battle, and 4,000 Israelites are killed. That, that's a lot. One of the things that we did when we were in New Orleans was we went to the D-Day Museum. Uh, excuse me, the World War II Museum. It used to be the D-Day Museum, and now, it's, and now it's the World War II Museum. But one of the things, that we, we think about D-Day, right? And we think about the horrors of, of Utah and Omaha beaches on that, that morning, June the 6th, 1944. And I don't remember the exact number, but it was somewhere in the neighborhood of about 1,500 Americans were killed in the course of D-Day. One day, 1,500. And here we have a battle, a day, 4,000 Israelites are killed. It's a significant number. And so what happens is they come back to camp and they're trying to take stock of what happened. Because up until this point, Israel has been pretty successful, haven't they? You know, we... We were just singing about God leading us and talked about leading the people through the Jordan. Well, from the time that, that Joshua and the people stepped foot into the River Jordan and the River Jordan stopped and the people walked across on dried land, God had been with them for the most part. There had been some setbacks, but the Israelites were not used to losing And then in one day, they lose against the Philistines, and they come back, and the elders, the leaders, trying to figure out what happened. And they come up with this brilliant idea. Let's turn to God. And what we learn here in this is that prior to this, they haven't. They've gone out and met the Philistines in battle, and they haven't prepared themselves. They haven't asked God to go with them. They haven't offered sacrifices and asked for redemption and forgiveness. They've tried to go out and beat the Philistines in their own power. And they've lost. And so, as a last resort, they turn to God. And they say, well, let's go and get the Ark of the Covenant and bring it here and let it go before us into battle. This is how they had won in the past. Now we've got to stop for a moment and, and remember what exactly the Ark is and what it signifies. 
The Ark of the Covenant was a, was a box built of very specific specifications. And in that box, there were three things that were placed. The first of those was the rod of Aaron. Just a stick. The second of the things that were placed in the Ark of the Covenant was, was a golden pot filled with manna. If you don't remember, manna was, was the, the bread substance that God gave the people while they were in the wilderness to, to sustain them. And the last thing that was in the Ark of the Covenant was the Ten Commandments. So those were the three things that were in the Ark of the Covenant. And, and so in that process, the Ark of the Covenant becomes to be a symbol and a real expression of the presence of God with his people. In fact, as it says here, that, that the God is enthroned between the two cherubim, the two angels that are on top of the ark. The ark is seen and understood to be the throne upon which the presence of the Lord rested. The ark was also the mercy seat. It was the, it was the place that as they would offer sacrifices on the day of atonement, the blood would be taken by the chief priest into the Holy of Holies and sprinkled on the mercy seat, sprinkled on the ark of the covenant for the people to be redeemed. And so what we begin to see here is that in fact, the Ark of the Covenant is God's prefiguring of Christ. Let's think about it. The Ark of the Covenant is a sign and a symbol of God's sovereignty and his presence among the people. What is Christ? But the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the sovereign of sovereign who came and whose presence was with the people. We see in the, the three items that are in the Ark of the Covenant, all of them point to God. Yes, we have the rod of Aaron. It's a symbol of Aaron's authority. But also, do you remember when God makes this dead stick bloom? He brings life forth from death. Is that not a sign of Christ? There's the, the pot of manna, right? The, the sustenance, the bread of life that God gave to the people in the wilderness. Who is the true bread of life? Jesus. And then the tablets of the law. And who is it that comes not to break the law, not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it in its entirety? Jesus. So even in the three items that we see in the ark, we see Jesus. And finally, the mercy seat. Brothers and sisters, who is our ultimate and supreme mercy seat? 
our ultimate and supreme rest is not in the Ark of the Covenant, but in the broken body of Christ, who splattered with his own blood for our forgiveness. And so what we see that what the Ark signifies, what the Ark signifies to the the Israelites is God's power and God's presence, but as we look back and as we read this story, what we see that it signifies also is, is the real presence of Christ. And so, and so the people turn and they say, let's go and get the ark. And so they bring the ark out. They bring the ark out. You know, it's, it is good to fall back on God on the day of your defeat. But is it not better to have turned to him before the battle is ever joined? It is good to see in your defeat that you need God? Is it not better to know before the first sword is ever drawn that it is only by God that you will triumph? And so, as I said, they've made God last resort. And in fact, what they're trying to do is they're trying to use God. And this is where we begin to see that this is no longer about a relationship between a God and his people, between a heavenly father and his earthly children. No, this has become about religion. We're going to use God. We're going to put the right combination into the machine and we're going to get out what we want. We want to beat the Philistines. So we're going to go and we're going to gather the presence of God and we're going to send it in front of us and we're going to use God to beat the Philistines. Never once in Scripture, right here, never once in this passage, are we ever led to believe that they ever asked God if they should fight the Philistines or if God wanted them to win. Never once in this story, have they ever sought the will of God? They think they can use religion, ritual, holy objects to get what they want. And here's the thing. God wants relationship with you. God wants to go in front of you into the battles in your life. God wants to fight your battles for you. But the sovereign creator of the universe will not abide and attempt to use him. We don't like being used, do we? I'm sure all of us have had that experience where somebody in our life maybe maliciously, maybe benignly, has used us to get something that they want. We don't like the feeling of being used. But here's the thing. None of us are God. And so as much as it hurts us, when we are used, how much more an affront to the Creator is it 
when the creature thinks they can use the Creator, bend the Creator to their, to the creature's will. God will not be used. So the ark enters into the Israelite camp. And as best I can tell, it it is as if LSU has just scored a touchdown. Because there is such cheering, and there is such stomping, and there is such a racket that the earth trembles. And we know that when LSU scores a touchdown... The earth trembles because the people in Death Valley cheer. So if you've ever been to a game like that, you've got some idea on what's happening in the camp. The Israelites cheer. And when the Israelites cheer, the Philistines hear them. And they want to know what's going on. And somehow they, they finally find out that the Ark of the Covenant, the presence of God, has entered into the Israelites' camp. And they are terrified. They are filled full of, of dread. Right there in verse 7, they panicked. A god But note, a God, not God, a God, has entered their camp. Woe to us, nothing like this has happened before. They're scared. They're terrified. They know the story of the Exodus. They know the power of the Israelites' God. They know that He can smite Egyptians through plagues. They know that He can separate a sea and drown an army. They know that He can bring down the walls of a city. And so, instead of just battling against the people of God, they have found themselves, they think, fighting against God Himself. Interestingly, it almost appears as if the Philistines remember more about who God is than the Israelites do. The Philistines remember that he is a God of power and might and majesty and victory. And the Israelites see him as a totem, a good luck charm. The Israelites are sure that God is going to save them. They have, they have faith in the ark. Jump back up there to verse 3. What does it say? Why did the Lord defeat us today before the Philistines? So there's at least an acknowledgement, right? 
that their, that their vanquishing is at the hands of God. They, they at least have got that part right. But then do they say, let us ask Him for forgiveness. Let us go to Him and ask Him to be with us. No. What they say is, let's go and get the ark. Their faith has come to be in the object, not in God. Their faith has come to be in the, the wood and the metal, not in what it represents. In fact, it's, it's almost as if they have turned the ark into an idol. I have to wonder, what would have happened if they had said, let us confess our sins and return to the Lord and ask for His favor once again? I don't have to wonder what would have happened. I think we know what would have happened. What would have happened is that God doubtlessly would have saved them as He does over and over and over again. But they, they don't do that. They go, they get the ark, they bring it back, and they head headlong into battle again. And what happens? Brothers and sisters, if they were defeated with the death of 4,000, they are utterly annihilated with the death of 30,000. We can read that number, and I think it's hard for us to wrap our brains around 30,000. It's a big number. It's a big, big number. 30,000 is the kind of casualties and fatalities you see in the entirety of a war not in a single battle. So they had gone. They had gotten the ark. They had sent the ark in front of them. And it had the opposite effect of what they were expecting. Not only are they defeated, we're told in verse 11 that the ark of God was taken. Now I want us to stop and really consider what this means. The ark was at the center of Israelite worship. The ark rested in the holy of holies, at the center of the first the tabernacle and eventually the temple. The ark is the place where God's physical presence is made known to his people. The ark is the place where the chief priest comes and offers that blood on the day of atonement for the forgiveness of all of the people. This is not the loss of just any thing. This is the loss of of God himself to the people to how they understand to the way they understand God's relationship with them you see God's at work because the object 
is taken from them. And it's the object that they have placed confidence in. And what is this going to force them to do? It's going to force them to place their faith in God alone. What we see in this episode is we see that ungodly men cannot preserve the power of religion. Who are the two who come with the ark? Hophni and Phinehas. And we know all about Hophni and Phinehas. We know who they are and what they have done and how they have defiled God's presence and how they have defiled the worship of God at the tabernacle. So is it any wonder that the cause of God is turned into ridicule when self-seeking and unprincipled men have the charge of holy things? You see what happens when ungodly men try and preserve the power of religion. The second thing that we see is that the Lord will not protect when the Spirit is gone. When the, when the Spirit is gone, when the people are no longer in right relationship with God, God will not be there to protect. The final thing that we see is that sin will always bring defeat. It can look good on the front end, can't it? It can look tempting and wonderful and beautiful, sin, but it always brings defeat. Brothers and sisters, as we strive to serve God, as we strive to be the people that God has called us to be, as we face trials and temptations in our own lives, as we face the, the, the issues that come against us as a congregation in this world, let us not turn God into an object, a talisman, a, a good luck charm that we call on when our own power has failed us. But let us remember that he is our Savior, the one who has redeemed us out of slavery to sin and death through the blood of his Son. And that as we turn to him first, seek his will, Seek his plan, his desire. Allow him to go before us and us follow him. We'll win. We'll be victorious. Our hymn of invitation this morning is hymn number 54, Great is Thy Faithfulness.